turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. If you're on the newer side with us, we are journeying through Matthew, and we are rounding out our almost two years in the book of Matthew together. We are in the home stretch, and where we find ourselves in just is large chunks of narrative and story, large chunks of the story that is following the person of Jesus in his last week on earth. And so where we find ourselves today is stepping deeper into the story leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And in today's passage, Jesus is going to be arrested, and he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to be separated from his disciples until after the resurrection. So we have a really long text in front of us today, and so I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, It's going to be quite long, and then we'll circle back around at the end and just talk about how we process what's happening here in the text. So we're going to start in Matthew 26, verse 47. And Matthew writes, while he was still speaking, okay, real quick, hold on. So while he was still speaking, do you guys remember the scene? Anyone who was here last week, what, where is Jesus and his disciples? Where are they right now? What was that? Someone say it with clarity. Yeah, well done. In the garden. Okay, good job. So he's in the garden. He's praying these intense prayers to the Father. Like, if, if this cup, I want this cup to be passed, but your will, Father, not my will be done. He comes back, finds his disciples sleeping. Is that jogging your memory happening in the scene there? And so while he was still speaking to his disciples, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, and as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests of the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. 
What is your judgment? They answered. He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You are also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went out and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver the price of him on whom a peace had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Father, we need your help this evening. God, help us understand what is happening in this story and and help us understand what it means for us. Holy Spirit, help me teach and preach in a way that that is faithful, to what is in the text, but is also faithful and helpful for what you are trying to do in us as a church. And uh, would you make us good receivers together as a church body? Would you help us to, to hear the word, do the word? Would you help us to internalize what is happening here? And so, Father, we ask for your help this evening, and we ask for you to speak. We ask for you to speak in, in big ways to us, and prepare us to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's quite a long text. We pick up in the narrative where, where we were last week. If you guys were here last week, Kevin was preaching, and, and he left off with Jesus in the garden, and, and sort of these moments of, of despair, of disappointment with Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus coming out of these intense moments of prayer and pleading with the Father, returned to his disciples. And he said, just backwards a couple of verses in verse 45, sleep and take your rest later on, he said to them. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And that's when Judas shows up. And the story follows Jesus as he speaks with the disciples. And and Judas, the missing disciple, comes to him with a big crowd. And they had clubs and they had swords this was not a Roman army. It was not a legion of, of Rome. This was people doing the dirty work of the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. 
and they were here. And Judas tells them to look for this sign where he says, the one I kiss, the one I identify, that's the man, sees him. And he goes up to him and kisses him and says, greetings, rabbi. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And so there, there's a whole lot here. There's a lot of story happening here. And I don't know about you guys, but there are times as I'm reading parts of the Bible where things stick out to me like they've never stuck out before. And this was one of those moments where as I was reading this text and, and praying through it and studying it and preparing for it for the weekend, uh, this, is, this is one of those words that just caught my attention that I had mentally known was in there because I had read this story before but never really gave two thoughts about before. And it's how Jesus replies to Judas. He says, friend, come, what you've, do what you've come to do. I was like, oh, that's a weird and oddly specific and intentional word for Jesus to use in this moment as he was just describing him as the betrayer to his other disciples. And he looks at Judas and says, friend. And so I, I went on a little journey to figure out what the heck Jesus meant by this. And I discovered that there's like a common word for friend in Greek that's used all throughout the New Testament. And Jesus chooses this word that has only appeared a couple of other times before. And they appear in the book of Matthew. And so this unusual uh, version of a friend, uh, this version of this word pops up in Matthew 20 and 22. Now, if, if you're not around, you're not familiar with these texts, I'll try to give you a little bit of background. They're both parables of Jesus, and they're talking about someone in these parables who has taken advantage of the master, taken advantage of this special relationship. And uh, in Matthew 20, verse 13, he replied to one of them, the master that is, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So this is from a story where a guy hires a bunch of day laborers, you know, some at the beginning of the day, some in the middle, some at the end, pays them all the same, and the guy who started in the morning starts shaking his fist and, and wondering why everyone's being paid the same for different work. That's where he uses this word. And the second one is this image or this parable of a wedding feast with someone who should not be at the wedding. And the master says to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And both of these two parables, and including this moment with Judas, are the only times this word, this specific version of the word friend pops up. And it's used to describe someone who is taking advantage of our particular closeness and relationship. They're, they're not where they're supposed to be. They're taking advantage of some aspect of, of the master. And Judas, one of Jesus' twelve, has taken advantage of his closeness of relationship with Jesus to betray him. And Jesus describes him as friend. Do what you've come to do. Then there's a scuffle with another disciple. The book of John, the writer John tells us it's Peter who cuts off this guy's ear. And there's a lot of kind of weird rabbit trails we could go off of trying to understand why Peter did what he did or, or whatever. But what is important for us to focus on in this story is that Jesus doesn't let Peter defend him. He doesn't try to stop what is happening. What we see here is Jesus willingly giving himself over to the process, trusting in the Father's will and his sovereign purpose and saying, no, this actually, it has to happen. He prevents his disciples from trying to stop what has to happen. And there's one particular verse, there's actually three here, but there's one in particular that gives us a clue as to why, and that's verse 56, when Matthew says, all this has taken place, 
that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So if you read the book of Matthew before, you probably come across that phrase quite a bit. Usually at the beginning and at the end, some sprinkled in the middle, but heavy in the beginning and heavy in the end is Matthew bringing in this phrase that Jesus is doing what he's doing to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill the prophecies that came before him, to walk in obedience to the Father. That is why he's doing this. That's why he doesn't let Peter defend him. That's why he doesn't try to stop what is happening but he willingly gives himself over to the process. He is here to obey the will of the Father. And this exchange is full of tension and, and sadness. And even though we, we're familiar with the story, we know what's going to happen. We can read ahead and, and see the victory. We can sit with the, the sadness that goes before. It's still a hard thing to read and to grapple with. It's still a, a sad thing. And I don't know about you guys, uh, but for me, I, I grew up in the church. I've read this story maybe a hundred times, maybe, maybe more. And there's a certain um, thing that happens when I'm so familiar with a particular passage. I read through it a little bit quicker each and every time I skim past that. I don't let myself really sit with it. And as I was kind of spending time in this passage this, this week, I was sitting with this passage. And I was just trying to let it affect me in some way. I was trying to let it penetrate my heart in a way that it hasn't in quite some time. And as I was reading through this account, I was just sad. I was sad for what is happening here. This is not just a thing that happened to a guy 2,000 years ago. This is my sin that put Jesus in this position. And it was genuinely sad to sit with that. And I wonder if nothing else for, for you and I this evening is if we need to take some moments and just to be sad with Jesus in this moment. In a culture where it is so easy to numb ourselves and distract ourselves by whatever is on our phone or whatever we can pop open on Netflix or go out and get an awesome cup of coffee, an awesome beer with someone to distract ourselves, I think we need a moment to sit with this story to remember that it was our sin that put Jesus in this position and to let ourselves feel sad about that, to mourn our sin, to mourn our sinfulness, to mourn that we are part of a broken world that necessitated God sending his son to be arrested, betrayed, mocked, spat upon, and to realize our own depravity. So that when we flip over one chapter over, and at Easter, when we marvel and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, it actually means something to us. You can't skip ahead to the good part. We have to sit with all that went before to fully appreciate what the resurrection does for us. If it helps, Jesus was sad too. This was no picnic for Jesus. He mourned this process. He asked the Father to take this cup away, but yielded to the Father's will anyway. He had spent time in prayer asking for any other way and still submits to the Father and says, your will be done, not mine. Jesus is willingly playing his part in God's redemptive story for your and I's sake. The next scene, we have Jesus before the council where they're chalking up all these charges against him and 
And Judas and his mob bring him there, but they still have to have some facade of, of legality. And he's taken before the court, and, and he continues to not defend himself, to stay silent. Until we get this one little glimpse at the end of the scene, in verse 63 and, and 64, Jesus remains silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replies, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus once again grabs the Son of Man title as a way of like ratcheting up the accusations against him. It's like not only the Christ, the Son of God, but this epic title, Son of Man, that would have carried a ton of weight for everyone in the room. And he says, I will be seated in power and you will see me seated in power, which gives them all the ammunition they need to declare him blasphemous. And this would have carried a death toll with it, and that is all they need. And Peter, witnessing this from the courtyard, does exactly what Jesus said he was going to do, and denied him. And Jesus' lowest moment here on earth where all of his disciples had left him and the only one that's even close by proximity is denying that he even knows the man and this all happened thursday night the day before he goes to the cross and in chapter 27 we see morning comes and they finish up the trial and all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against jesus and put him to death they bound him and took him to Pilate the governor, who would have been the guy who actually had legal authority to kill someone. They couldn't, the Jews couldn't do that on their own, so they take him to Pilate. And what we see here in this last bit in chapter 27 is another one of those phrases that caught my attention as I was sitting with this text. And the first was when Jesus said, friend, do what you've come here to do. And I thought that's, that was very odd. And the next one is found in verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He changed his mind. I thought, that is also very strange. He changes his mind upon seeing what they are doing to Jesus. And he went to try to undo his part in the story. And Judas giving the money back would not have set Jesus free. That wouldn't have really changed anything. But maybe he was hoping to appease some of his own guilt in that process. And they didn't take back the money but he went and he hung himself. And Matthew points out that the entirety of all this was once again to fulfill what had happened by the prophet Jeremiah and of Zechariah as well. And all this went down and Judas changed his mind. And what we see in this story, this lengthy narrative, is both Peter and Judas, albeit not on the same playing field, both denied Jesus in some fashion. And they responded in grief but we see their stories took a divergent path after that. Judas changed his mind. He, he experienced feelings of, of regret and remorse, but not in a way that led him to repentance, which means a change of heart or a change of life. Peter went away and wept bitterly, also felt feelings of regret and, and remorse, but as we know later, because we know how God has worked in Peter's life later, he, he repented, he changed. Like, that was not a point of ultimate remorse for Peter, but he went and repented and changed. Judas turned his remorse into self-hate and killed himself. 
whereas Peter was used mightily for God's purposes later on in his life. So from this narrative, what I ultimately want to do is I, I kind of want to draw one, one conclusion for us and let us sit in a couple of spaces here together. And from, from this narrative, I want to draw one main point. And that main point is Jesus, who knew no sin, was betrayed, arrested, sentenced, and sent to the cross for our sake that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place so we can do what the religious leaders of his time failed to do, which was see Jesus for who he is and arrange our lives accordingly. That's been a frequent theme of ours we've come back to throughout the book in our study of Matthew is this call to see Jesus for who he is and arrange our lives accordingly. And in our text today, seeing Jesus for who he is means sitting with all that he had to go through for our sake so that we might have life with him. And one of the implications of this reality is is just a moment to, to even teach you guys a little bit of doctrine if you are new to the church and new to the Bible And one of these great truths that emanates from these stories here in Matthew chapter 26 and 27 is this biblical truth and theology of the great exchange. That Jesus went to the cross and exchanged your sinfulness for his righteousness. It's an incredibly weighty concept that is much to be dug into At the cross, Jesus took on all the sins of humanity, past, present, future, and exchanged his perfect righteousness for all of the sinfulness of humanity. And why I'm drawing this out of here, the narrative, and not, we're not at the crucifixion yet, but why I'm drawing this out right here is because what we needed was not simply someone to go to the cross but we needed a special somebody who lived a perfect, sinless life in perfect obedience to the Father to go to the cross on our behalf. And what we see here in this story is ample opportunity for Jesus to change the story, and he doesn't. He stays perfectly obedient to the Father so that as he goes to the cross, he is the perfect and necessary and needed sacrifice for you and I. Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life, the very righteousness of God, manifest in man, was falsely accused and and willingly took on the sins of all humans, exchanging our sinfulness for his righteousness. And this narrative here in in 26 and 27 seems to emphasize the various uh, moments of dishonor Jesus experienced on the way to the cross. The intimate betrayal, the the false witnesses, the spitting, the striking, the slapping, the mocking call for prophecy, the denial of one of his closest friends and disciples, Peter. Each of these should drive us into a deeper sorrow over the abject humiliation of Jesus. But it shouldn't stay that way. That should drive an even deeper gratitude for all that Jesus has done. Paul writes in in one of his letters to the church in Corinth in chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, Jesus, he made Jesus to become sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What I find utterly fascinating about how, how Paul sums up what is happening here 
is he doesn't say that we might have the righteousness of God as a tool in the toolbox or as something to wield, but he speaks in terms of identity, that part of being in the family of God is being the righteousness of God. That is your story and your identity if you follow Jesus. That no matter any, anything that you've done in the past, no matter anything you will do in the future, if you are found in him, you are the righteousness with God. Jesus has done everything that needed to be done to bring you into the family of God, to bring you into his kingdom so that you and I can draw near in confidence to the throne of grace. So you and I can have access through Jesus by the Holy Spirit to the Father. You are the righteousness of God. We enter a situation where, Je- where God puts Jesus in a position to become sin so you and I can become righteousness. And in that process of going to the cross, Jesus experienced the depths of human sinfulness. He experienced betrayal. He experienced condescension, humility, murder, hatred, all the wickedness that we as humanity have conjured up in all of time and history was heaped on his shoulders. And he took on both physically and spiritually. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and experienced our worst for you. My hope is by spending time in a passage like this, We don't glaze through these passages of Scripture and just kind of jam through them and read them quick. But we actually sit in these moments to comprehend just a little bit more all that Jesus went through. So that when we celebrate the resurrection, it means something. So that as we look to Jesus, our Savior, we've actually done the work to sit with our own sinfulness that put him on the cross. And to remember the beautiful truth that there is nothing that you could achieve to not put him on the cross. He had to go. And we are perfectly found in him. And that is the free gift of grace. And so that's where I want to sit this evening. I know it's a little somber. It's a little sad. Sorry, this is not a bit of a pep rally. The forewarning next week is going to be a little sadder as well. And, and this is really important for us as we sit with the, the narrative of Jesus to actually spend time remembering all he went through, all that we've done to put him through that, to experience real joy of resurrection and not this shallowy happiness, but a deep joy that comes from knowing every bad thing that you and I have done that could have and did separate us from God, Jesus has overcome in the cross. It's a beautiful thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to respond uh, together. Zach and Jensen are going to come on up and, and lead us in a bit of response. And to do that, what I want to do is, is pray a prayer with and for you. Um, and it is both a prayer of, of receiving. We're going to ask to receive some things from God. But it's also, I'm going to give you a little bit of space to just think about this for a moment. To contemplate, to meditate on the hard truth that you are sinful and broken 
but because of Jesus that has been all overcome so that you can have life and life to the full. So let's go ahead and stand together. And as you stand, uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, as, as you close your eyes, we pray together just to put out your arms right in front of you. There's nothing mystical about that. It's just simply uh, mirroring our body to what we hope happens in our heart. And we're going to pray together, and I'm going to give you just um, some moments of silence to contemplate what's happening here. Fathers, we take some moments to respond together. Uh, as we sing, as we receive communion, all of these other things, um, we just want to first put ourselves in a posture of wanting to receive from you. And so, Father, would you help guide our minds and our hearts in these, these few silent moments together and show us what, what this text leads us to do. This is not an insanely practical teaching, uh, but Father, we need to sit with it and we need to ask, what do you want from us? And for some, it might be an encouragement to, to press on and to continue to live under the reality that, that Jesus is Lord. He has gone to great lengths to reconcile you. And for others, it might need to be a moment like Peter where we repent of how we've denied Jesus, how we've been, like Judas, a false friend who have only sought to take advantage of Jesus. So, Father, in these moments of silence, would you speak to us? We believe you do. And show us how this text changes us and changes our lives. Jesus, who knew no sin, was betrayed, arrested, sentenced, and sent to the cross for our sake, that we might become the righteousness of God. Some of you, like Peter, have spent time in your life denying Jesus, his power, his authority, his authority over you, and have not aligned your life to his way. And the invitation for you is, much like Peter's, repent and change not simply change your mind, but to change your heart. And some of you are proclaiming, yes, Jesus is Lord. I see him as Lord, and, it, and it's hard. The encouragement to you is press on. Press on. Jesus is who he says he is. The Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the ultimate remedy and solution for all of life's woes and worries and trials. And so, Jesus, we see you as Lord, and would you help us arrange our lives accordingly? Amen.